Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to another investment bonus edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I sit down with our chief investment officer, Bob Weiss, to discuss what's going on in the markets and the investment universe right now. Last month, Bob and I discussed how the market looked year to date, given the high inflation uh, that we were seeing, uh, the Fed's aggressive rate hike policies, touching on a, a bear market and the potential for a recession. And those are themes that still continue to dominate. Bob, I would imagine that you've basically been focused on on many of the same things. Yeah, absolutely. The, the macro is definitely the, the question of the day. Um, you know, where are stocks going? People are always asking, but now it's, are we going into a recession? How much you know, further down is there to go? Is it a buying opportunity? That, that That's what we're hearing, what we're focusing on. Yeah. And and th- there's a lot um, to that. And, and one of the things that we've been sharing with clients in our review meetings is just a reminder that the market's a leading indicator. And so that the sell-off that we've been seeing is signaling some kind of slowdown in the economy and corporate earning picture, whether it leads to a recession or not, is you know more of a technical measurement, but it, it's signaling something. And also if investors are worried about the duration or how long this kind of weaker market can go, that whole aspect of the market being a leading indicator also means that the market will turn around or should turn around before the inflation picture materially improves, before the economy starts to recover, before corporate earnings pick up, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. And that's something we constantly have to tell clients that you know, a lot of um, basically the bad stuff that could happen is priced in. When you're down about 20% in stocks and you haven't seen um, big cuts in corporate earnings, the economy is well, has been still growing. It depends how you calculate GDP, I suppose. Take that one back a bit. But um, overall, things still look pretty good minus inflation and stocks are down quite a bit. So th- there's um, some more bad news priced in than we're seeing today. So we'll eventually see that bad news hit, but that doesn't mean the market at that point needs to take another leg downwards. That's what the market's been kind of anticipating right now. Right. Great. So what have you seen over the last little bit since our last podcast where we discussed this? Any updates on on your view of inflation or, or what the Fed is doing? Yeah, I guess uh, in, inflation is obviously the, the, the big question. And what we believe is, is pretty clear is the Fed is going to tackle inflation. They are going to what we've called um, pop the inflation bubble. Um, you know, it goes back to thinking what Volcker did in the early 80s. And, you know, the Fed needs to restore credibility. So in hearing Powell and what they're talking about, we, we do think they're going to go after inflation and do what it takes to um, get us out of this inflationary environment. So then the question with that is, if, if you say they're going to do that, then um, will we have that soft landing where they do it and they don't really drag the economy into a deep recession, in which case we're at a buying opportunity? Um, or will things get um, pretty bad in, in the economy um, because they're willing to do that at the expense of fighting inflation? So those are really the, the two things we're looking at, the two paths. And it's, it's almost like you could say maybe um, two-thirds probability that it doesn't get too bad. And one third that, you know, they, they do have to hurt the economy in a good way. 
in a big way. And um, we're down 20%. So it's almost like it's two thirds priced in. So that that, that uh, just stepping back is um, kind of a simple framework for how we're looking at things today. Yeah, absolutely. And you've used uh, the phrase kind of priced in uh, a few times already in this uh, short podcast so far. What do you What do you mean by that? So investors invest based on the future, not today. Uh, I mean, tech stocks are a, a good example, an extreme example, where people will buy unprofitable tech companies, not for the cash flow they're going to get tomorrow. There's no cash flow tomorrow. They're looking out five, 10 years even. So investors make decisions not based on what's happening today, but what's going to happen in the future. So I just gave a single stock example, but um, you know, you step back and well, the market is stocks and aggregate. So it's investors thinking what's going to happen over the next few months, over the next year or two, and that informs the price they want to pay for assets today. So that's what I mean by price done. So one recent example we've chatted about is the Fed signaled uh, a lot of rate hikes uh, coming up. And well, earlier uh, uh, this year, there was a lot of uh, signaling on future rate hikes. The market had expected uh, aggressive rate hikes. And once that news is out there, it's basically or should be reflected in market prices. Exactly. That's why short-term rates, like the two-year treasury, it's around 3% right now. And the Fed funds rate isn't there yet, but that's the market basically saying over the next two years, it's going to get right around there. And that's the, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but that's the rational response. But we all know that markets don't just price in news, they can uh, overshoot in either direction, right? Um, And so that's why it's so hard to know kind of mathematically where these things should start and stop and end and, and not end. And, and fear and greed does take over and push things uh, further in a, in a direction once we've started. We were chatting a little bit about one measurement of fear in the marketplace, which is the VIX. And uh, it was kind of connected to this idea that the market seems a little range bound right now. We've kind of been floating between, I don't know, 18% to 24% down Um, The bond market struggled to start the year, but it's been much more um, even keeled lately. hasn't recovered, but but it you know it stayed within a within a narrow stretch. And I you know I kind of asked you what what is going on with the VIX, and you you know what are you seeing in terms of that volatility index compared to other moments in time? Yeah, so the VIX right now it's around thirty, and it um, this year peaked uh, 38, 39 is as high as it's gotten. Um, By comparison, in March of 2020, when uh, we were in the COVID crash, it got up to around 70. And back in the global financial crisis in November of 08, it went to about 70. So at that level, 70, that's the the real panic level. And I think what what you said a minute ago is interesting, where um, markets are normally pretty rational. Investors you know, take out Excel spreadsheets, calculators, forecast using reasonable assumptions, it all gets, I'll say it again, priced in. And you have buyers, sellers, and the, the price is typically right. Um, during some periods where there's panic, emotions take over. The calculators and spreadsheets go out the window and people are just trading, selling without thinking straight. And that's when there are opportunities. That's when markets become inefficient which um, isn't too frequent, I would say, in a, in a big way, especially in a macro way. So at Heritage, we do look for things like that. 
when we think emotions are taking over uh, rational market behavior. And that's when we think it's time to step on the gas a little bit. When people are panicking, you know, they're saying oh, there's blood on the streets, that, that's when you want to buy. Um, you know, that, that's looking at a higher VIX level than we're at right now. That can cut both ways. Anecdotally, I would share with you, and you know, we talk about it as a team a lot. Clients are fairly okay, I guess. To, for I don't know if that's a great way to explain it. With the, nobody loves the the market that we're seeing right now, but there have definitely been other environments where I've seen a lot more nerves and concerns amongst investors. And I mean, you referenced two two thousand eight was was the granddaddy of of them all. Is that what you're seeing, kind of anecdotally? And by saying it could swing both ways, it could mean that you know the the worst is is yet to come because people haven't fully thrown in the towel, or it could could mean that no, people are all right. They understand we're going through a process here as it relates to to inflation, and they're they're basically just going to ride it out, and we may not have a, a much steeper leg down. You said it right. Um, clients are pretty well informed these days. What's happening? In markets, I hate to say it isn't that complicated, but I feel like it's not that complicated. <laughs> like in, in COVID, it's like, are we going to depression? How's all this going to play out? And there, there's a lot of, like, we've never been in this before, the financial crisis. I mean, you have major investment banks failing. What happens when Lehman fails? No one really had been through that before, almost since the depression. But this time around, it's the story's inflation side. The Fed's going to fight inflation. Interest rates are going up. Stocks are going down. It's There's a war in Russia and Ukraine. To understand what's going on, it's not overly complicated. So I think people watch the news, see the headlines, and you know, get that there's challenges in the world right now. And it's not, um, hasn't been a great six months to be invested. Yeah. And I think that's a great point with, with the bear market that we saw in March of 2020 related to covid I think there was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, what is this thing? What is this pandemic? What are we going to go through? And then the market recovered really quickly, uh, extremely quickly. And I think for the next year, we were answering in client questions, why would the market be recovering this fast when the world is still pretty much shut down? And it was a very kind of disorienting, confusing environment. And I think, like you said, major institutions going under in 2008, people wondering they should pull their, their cash out of the bank. This is more straightforward. It is easier to to wrap your head around, and hopefully that can lead to some investor optimism that we may not get that panic route um, based on the information that we have today. Yeah, I, I think we probably won't see that 2008 type panic, March 2020 type panic. The, the, the market's working through some things. Um, are we at a bottom? We don't know, but I, I don't think we probably won't see that VIX at 70 and get into that environment again, which is a good thing. Other than, you know, a little bit of us on the investment team love those opportunities <laughs> when they come, um, but no one else likes it, um, advisors and clients. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't get too much worse. Absolutely. I agree, Bob. And so um, kind of staying on stocks for, for a second, there really hasn't been this year a major uh, performance differential between U.S. and international stocks or developed international or emerging markets. This hasn't been a year, I think, or, and correct me if I'm wrong, where where you're invested uh, uh, globally has made a huge difference in terms of, of your returns. Yeah. The, the one thing I'd say is give emerging markets a little bit of a plug. They're okay. down 15% year to date. U.S. markets down 20. 
So down 15, not good, down 20, not good, but still 5% um, outperformance from emerging markets. And that's a little unique because emerging markets have what, what you'd call a higher beta, like 1.1, 1 1.2. 1 right. So base case, they should do 1.1, 1.2x what the US would do because there's more risk. So if they were down 25%, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So to see them down less in a risk off market is, um, it, it's it's good to have an allocation of emerging markets and see that this year. No, thanks for clarifying. And what would you attribute that to, Bob, since they are higher volatilities, uh, higher beta stocks, why are they uh, holding up a little bit better? Yeah, two things I'd point to. One is valuations. Um, we've been saying this emerging markets are cheap and the US market's been expensive and expensive has been selling off. Cheap has been holding up a little better. That's the value growth story, whether you're talking about companies within the US or regions. And the second is emerging markets have more um, commodity producing uh, countries. Like you think of Brazil, for example, out of oil and um, precious metals. Um, those are more concentrated in emerging markets. So um, higher inflation has benefited companies in those countries in some cases. And is it true that China is easing their monetary policy or at least not tightening it like we are? That's true. Yes. So that that's helpful as well. And they're a big part of the emerging markets. That's more of a recent story, like the last okay. month or so. Um, China's been a tough place to invest. I don't have the exact numbers in the Chinese market in front of me, but I'm pretty sure they've had a bad year um, and that's starting to turn around, but they still have a lot of catching up to do. Gotcha. All right. So that's not one of the primary uh, performance drivers. And then you touched on valuations, but as value investors, we continue to be smiling over the difference between value and growth year to date. Yeah. Um, in front of me, I have the MSCI USA value index. It's down 12%. The USA growth index is down 29%. Wow. So growth down 29%, value down 12%. Big, uh, what do you call value premium there? So um, you know, earlier I made the joke about calculators and spreadsheets. It's it's true now when things get tough, people are saying, okay, what's the fair price for a company? And when they have cash flow, it's easier to, to come up with a, a price that's close to the current price than, you know, to talk about companies that are based on dreams and hopes. And when you're less optimistic, those can fall a lot more. Interesting. That's similar, I, I guess, to the tech-driven bear market in, in 2000, 2001. Uh, or, or is it where basically value held up much, much better than growth? And I think early on was was actually positive. I, I remember small cap value was was making money while the NASDAQ was was getting obliterated. Uh, are there some common themes between you know this bear market and, and that one? Yeah, definitely similarities, some differences as well. Um, similarities, there are, like I've said a couple of times, the unprofitable companies that are trading at really large valuations. What's different is there are also very big tech companies that are very profitable, like Apple um, and Microsoft are the two big names that, that are quite profitable, trade at reasonable valuations, a little high, um, throw Google in there too. Yep, um, yep. But we didn't have that in the tech bubble, but it's still around that. I'm not gonna go through handfuls of names because there are a lot of them, but you also have, companies that are worth 10 billion, 100 billion that aren't making money. And a $100 billion company not making money now is what we saw in the tech bubble. Got it. Understood. Um, so switching gears a little bit to bonds, uh, 
you know, I, I mentioned that bond volatility had, had leveled off a little bit. Um, and you had, uh, in preparing for this, you just shared with me that the, the 10-year yield is, has remained kind of in a, around the same level. I think you said it was around three. And, you know, what are, what are you seeing in the bond market uh, today? And, you know, what are you thinking uh, of doing about it? Because I know we're very active in the fixed income space historically. Yeah, if you step back a little bit and think about market cycles and how they work, as you get towards the end of a market cycle, what you see is the economy's hot, inflation starts to run high. Inflation runs high, um, the Fed starts to fight inflation, raise rates. But while inflation is high and the Fed's initially starting to raise rates, the bond market gets spooked. So yields have to adjust. Inflation's high, the Fed's raising rates, uh-oh, bad environment for bonds, and bonds sell off. And at that time, you can also see stocks sell off. That's what we have been going through and um, might say been going through up until uh, a month or two ago, where you've been seeing stocks down and bond yields up, also known as bond yield, bond prices down. Now we might be transitioning to a second phase in that cycle where the economy slows down, might go into a recession, inflation you know, um, isn't as much of an issue anymore, and bond yields fall. That's when you have what, what people call the flight to quality. So bonds go from, oh, no, I don't want to own them. Inflation's high to, oh, I'm not going to lose money in bonds. Please let me you know, lock in a 2 or 3% yield. So if things get worse earlier on when I painted out the scenario, like the, the not soft landing scenario where we do head into a recession, um, we can definitely see more of a flight to quality, meaning investors buy bonds, yield on a 10-year treasury goes from three back down to say two, even one and a half. That's definitely um, something that's in the cards. And if that happens, you'll get a 10% return in bonds. Wow. And so the thought process there would be what? To add some, some yield, to add some interest rate risk, because if we get a, a, a market sell-off and a flight to quality, we'll you know, make out as investors. But if we don't, you're getting a higher yield uh, and you know the interest rate risk story doesn't fully play out. Yeah. That's it's a good it. bet, basically, I, I guess. Yeah. And maybe to frame it a little bit, we've been talking a lot about real assets for the last two years and it's, oh, it's a nice structure. And if inflation's high, it'll do well. And we weren't saying inflation's going to be 8%. That's why we're doing this, but it did come in high and that, that allocation's worked really nicely. What's the opposite of real assets? What's the opposite of having something that will be there if inflation runs at 8%? Well, long-term government bonds are uh, pretty much as good as it gets. And it's not like we're calling for that, but it's a scenario that could play out. And with our clients, we're all about diversification, having our bases covered. And uh, part of the thinking is just shifting a little bit off the bet from that positioning that helps in the 8% inflationary scenario that to the one that helps if inflation comes in below expectations. And um, the key thing, I know some people might be listening to this and say, you guys crazy. Um, it's market markets price in things before they happen. So it's not what's happening now, but it's what's going to happen in the future. No one knows. So it's definitely a possibility that inflation slows more than people are expecting. Got it. And when you said treasuries, the opposite of real assets, what did you mean by that, sir? So if you think, um, inf say inflation's high, if it, if it increases um, above expectations, so all of a sudden you wake up and, oh, wow, we're in an inflationary environment. I didn't know that. What happens? Bond yields sell off. 
right. people say, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to own a bond when inflation's at 8%. Um, and, you know, things like real assets go up. The, the flip side of it is you wake up and say, inflation's nowhere to be found. Um, all of a sudden, a 3% yield in bonds is a 3% real yield. So you're getting 3% above inflation. That is um, what you're looking for in a financial plan in many cases to get 3% above inflation. So when there's no inflation, bonds are attractive and you don't even need a 3% yield on a treasury. You'll get one or two and be happy with it. So that, that's, if that makes sense, that's what I meant by the opposite. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, great um, in terms of a thought process. And I'm sure our listeners love kind of hearing an investment team's thoughts developing in action, basically as a reaction to, to market movements. So thanks for sharing that with us. I want to wrap up with what I think, although I haven't ranked them, is my least favorite investment or the thing I think is the dumbest, which is crypto. And um, and I know you're not a fan of it, so you're probably wondering why the heck I'm bringing it up. But it's almost as a warning. You, you know, you you talk about the idea of being a value investor. You talk about the idea of you know things sell off; they can become more attractive. Um, and it's a warning that just because something speculative like Bitcoin goes from I don't know where it was sixty thousand to nineteen thousand, it doesn't mean it's now a value because the underlying asset is still this speculative, confusing mess. You wouldn't become, as an investor, Bob, more attracted to something you weren't attracted to just because it sold off by two-thirds. No. I mean, Bitcoin's market cap, I just looked it up, is, I have trouble even saying this, if I'm right, counting these commas, $364 billion. So $364 billion for all the Bitcoin in the world. I'd rather $364 billion, if you ask me, than all the Bitcoin in the world. Could that go to $100 billion? Sure. Could it go to $3 billion? <laughs> I, I, I don't see why it should be over $300 billion. It used to be a trillion, though. Um, but I wouldn't be jumping to buy it right now. And uh, that's funny, because Warren Buffett had said he wouldn't buy all the Bitcoin in the world, I think, for 25 bucks. I think that <laughs> one might have been hyperbolic. I think I'd probably exchange $25 right now. <laughs> For $364 billion or whatever you said, and then immediately turn around and get a huge tax bill. But um, his point, I think, was the point you and I were talking about, which is it's not just price declines. It, you know, there has to be some kind of value to the, to the asset, some kind of underlying purpose to it. Exactly. Nice. All right. Anything else, Bob, on, on your mind as uh, you uh, uh, look out at the horizon with uh, your investment team? No, I think that's it. We covered a lot today, so nothing else to add for now. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Bob, uh, for your thoughts, and I uh, hope you have a, a great uh, long weekend. Thanks. You too, Sammy. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow Heritage Financial on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.